Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. There is no substitute for knowing what you're talking about. If you want to change what the government does, you need to know what it does in detail and what will happen if you get what you want. This allows you to answer the questions that people have about the issue and to figure out how to convince others. Byron Schlomach has been doing this for decades, advocating for change in Texas, Arizona, and Oklahoma as a policy researcher for free market think tanks in those states. Byron, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. What do you think you're trying to accomplish with all of this research and writing? My, the main thing I'm trying to accomplish is to have people reach their maximum potential um, economically, socially, uh, just in terms of their uh, satisfaction in life. I, uh, I, I tend to be a, a lover of virtue, but obviously not everybody is. And so um, the best way to achieve what we want to achieve is in a world that allows the, allows the greatest number of options. How does that uh, those values uh, drive your research platform then? Well, I look at things from an institutional perspective. I don't look at things in terms of trying to drive people to certain outcomes that I personally think are best. Obviously, I have an opinion about the best way to live and the best uh, the, the best way to conduct my daily life. But that's something to be determined by people in their uh, personal and private interactions, not something to be dictated by government. Mm -hmm. uh, so how does that inform your research agenda? Uh, give me an example of how that applies. Well, uh, I, I just I just got back from a Cato healthcare conference and where I, mm -hmm. I presented on. Um, Cato is a free market think tank, uh, nationally focused, but they cover a lot of issues. Right, they do. And they have this little conference every year on healthcare for state think tankers and other organizations. And um, I presented on the idea that I've had for a long time and have advocated on private certification. And the idea there... Uh, explain that yeah, a little bit for listeners. Yeah, the idea there is to um, create a fertile institutional structure in the states for various organizations that uh, to train people for certain or to uh, certify people for certain occupations and to basically give them a seal of approval that they're qualified to carry out those occupations. And instead of doing that through licensing, where the government has a monopoly over giving permission for people to do those sorts of things. You have these private organizations that can often compete with each other in the same space, competing over how the, qualitatively on how well they police the people that they certify as well as see to their training. And so I think it would ultimately create a better outcome. What we have with government licensing is a cadre of people, if you will, at least in each occupation, oftentimes 
it's a cadre of people <laughs> overseeing many occupations, um, determining through their exclusive values how people receive services rather than having uh, people in general determine these things in a market setting. And markets historically have just done a better job of showing how uh, qualitatively what's best for people and what people really desire. Another area that I look at and that I often talk to people about, that one of the things that aggravates me about welfare and Medicaid and, and some of these giveaway programs is that for social assistance programs. Oh, yeah. Social, yes. All social assistance programs is that they level up people who make bad decisions in their lives. Basically, they compensate them for bad decisions that they make in their lives. And those of us who make good decisions in our lives, you know, refuse to get addicted to drugs, uh, don't abuse ourselves in some other way, uh, seek out virtue. And as a result, we have relatively, I guess you'd say prosperous lives. Uh, we're taxed. We're pulled down uh, because of these social programs. I want I want the market system to work and people who are making poor decisions, they may be very pleasurable in the short run, but who make poor decisions in life need to need to bear the consequences of it and make different decisions. That's that's how uh, I'm informed with my policy views and uh, and efforts. Well, let's get back to this uh, Cato uh, presentation that you're making about private certification. Right. What are what are you trying to do with that? I'm trying to uh, to well, basically, we have a series of cartels in licensing. Uh, mm -hmm. In medicine, you have medical doctors. It's it's a cartel. You have the American Medical Association dominating uh, medical doctors, and they artificially create. Uh, I'm not going to call it a shortage, but they limit the supply of doctors. And they do that for the sake of the doctor community to have the highest incomes that they possibly can. And then uh, you have the same thing happening with attorneys. You have the same thing happening uh, with uh, podiatrists, chiropractors. This is mostly in healthcare, mm -hmm. but you have it also in other areas like social workers are licensed. Uh, don't, yeah, yeah. In, in Michigan, we uh, we license reptile handlers. Oh yeah, and uh, and so you have all these services, and increasingly the our uh, our job market is dominated by licensing, and it's just a series of cartels. Cartels always they're monopolist like, and uh, so their mission is to limit supply. That, of course, bids up the price, but because it limits competition, it also negatively impacts quality. That's not to say that we don't have a very good healthcare system in this country, but it's very expensive. And the fact is, qualitatively, it could be a lot better. So I'm trying to counteract that with private certification by creating a system that's, 
that preserves the good thing about licensing. There is one good thing about licensing, and it provides shorthand information, qualitative information to people. It's not always accurate. Nothing in the world is perfect. But that shorthand information uh, benefits both sellers and consumers. And it'd be good to uh, preserve that benefit. That way people aren't overwhelmed with information. Uh, So I'm glad you brought up this issue because I think it's, it's, both very interesting, but I want to talk about, again, the craft of, of policy. Sure. So, like, importantly, you've got this, this idea of private certifications better than licensing. Right. You know, no one's born knowing how licensing and alternative forms of providing these market mechanisms can work. How did you develop expertise on the subject? Reading. Uh, the fact is, uh, I actually had the private certification idea when I was gra- in graduate school. You mentioned that, yeah, I'm old enough that that's decades ago. (laughs) And part of it was a result of reading a book that was published by Cato about occupational licensing. It was very critical of occupational licensing. Mm -hmm. It's not that I didn't already have my suspicions, but I read that book. I was persuaded by it. I started thinking about it. Why is it, why does it exist? Uh, What could we do to create an alternative? And, Mm-hmm. One thing that I I realized was that it had a lot to do with how you protect credentials and under with without an institutional structure created by government the only thing you have is recourse to courts which is very uncertain very expensive and doesn't particularly work all that well for for this kind of a purpose even when people are committing fraud against a certification. And so I came up with criteria that certifying organizations would have to meet that are very market oriented, very open, mostly consumer informative, where government would then extend its fraud protection, criminal fraud protection to that certifying organization. And so that's that's what it's about. But again, any certifying organization that meets certain criteria could be protected in this way and compete in the same space as already existing licensing organizations. So the whole idea behind uh, and look, it's not as if uh, economists haven't been studying licensing since that book was published. There are uh, all you have to do is start searching on the internet and you're going to find academic papers evaluating licensing in a variety of areas, uh, usually related to healthcare, but not always. And, and you're, and there's a, there are related examples. Like there's a very old paper looking at advertising for eyeglasses and that mm-hmm. kind of thing was regulated oftentimes by licensing, uh, agencies and where they limit advertising, the prices of ag- eyeglasses are actually higher, not lower. And so that kind of stuff, that kind of related research, then research, uh, there was a researcher at this Cato Institute. He had looked at uh, the supply of EMTs pre and post um, uh, Obamacare and, uh, mm-hmm. and found that, you know, states with stricter licensing requirements, the supply didn't increase nearly as much as a result of the demand increase that the, uh, that the federal ACA law, uh, 
engendered. So it's that kind of research that looking at and, and keeping some updated to some extent, but, um, but the over the research in economics is overwhelming that, that licensing is negative. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I, I came to it with a similar background. Mm-hmm. Like I think at first, uh, it was in a public policy economics course in college and they just had like a quick overview of the occupational licensing issue, which is like, it's theoretically here to protect public health, but it can become a barrier to entry. We've got a lot of academic papers on this one, but nothing seems to be changing. And it looks like you were actually trying to change these things and running into some stumbling blocks and uh, uh, having questions over strategy and all sorts. Well, of and, things. The, so and, you, and, and the whole idea is strategic in the first place. Obviously, when you look at the history of our efforts in occupational licensing, we're trying to get them repealed. is just butting your head against a wall. And, if you do get one repealed, three others get passed that you didn't even know were on the agenda. And so uh, that's been a that's been a foolish strategy, the head on attack. This is more of a flanking maneuver. It's not like uh, mm-hmm. the licensing people aren't aren't smart enough to figure out what's going on. It's just that it's something that's viable. And I think it's something that's persuasive potentially to lawmakers. And so. And and that's something that we have to be constantly careful about and aware of is how our strategies. There's another strategy going around the country right now: universal uh, recognition or recognition. Yeah, yeah. I can see the short-term benefit of that policy, and think tanks are pushing it. Think tanks that I generally am philosophically aligned with, but in the long run. I think they're doing something that's going to cause problems. Uh, the cat's out of the bag. It's probably going to spread all over the country at this point. And that's why this private certification is so important, because I think ultimately what this is mm-hmm. going to create, the reciprocation, is a nationwide licensing regime in one area after another. Mm-hmm. And that makes it that much more difficult to do any repeals. So with this existing parallel to licensing, uh, we can we can head off those the ultimately negative effects that policy is going to have. Yeah, that's uh, interesting because again, people with a lot of same similar values, similar outlooks on things. When it comes to strategy, though, it's what really are the barriers? What's the best way to move forward? And there's a lot of diversity about like exactly where to go. But I want to spend a little time on opposition, uh-huh. which is uh, you've. You come at this issue with a particular set of principles and assumptions, and they help guide your recommendations. Does your opposition to this proposal tend to be people with different principles and assumptions? As in, is this an ideological debate? It is part, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have people. Look, I'm. I, I don't want to be real partisan. It's not as if it's just Democrats that oppose this, but. Uh, overwhelmingly, Democrats immediately oppose it just because it's coming from a think tank that's to the right of them um, or from from a person who's to the right of them. Um, it's not as if left-leaning people aren't aware that licensing poses a problem. The Obama administration, I was contacted by the Obama administration. They recognized the problems that licensing was creating. <clears throat> but 
you do have a bunch of people, and I again, it's bipartisan, uh, just more heavily in the Democrat space, um, that think government at some level knows best. They believe in rule by experts and specialists, and they think that people really are smart enough to know what's better for everybody else in the country and not just in a given state. And mm-hmm. so that ideological, and that's very ideological, that is something that there's really no evidence supporting that point of view, but they persist in it. And, um, mm-hmm. and so their ideological point of view is one that's very hard to overcome. And the other thing is that the very first thing when I talk to kind of give my elevator speech for the private certification idea that a legislator brings up is, well, how do we exempt law and medicine? Well, (laughs) I'm not going to exempt them from the, I'm not Mm going to push any kind of an exemption for them Mm -hmm. in this proposal. That's where the biggest problems are. Um, But there, there's also the whole risk aversion problem that you have where, oh my goodness, this is new. This is different. We have licensing. Mm -hmm. People have been convinced that licensing is for the protection of people, although the evidence for that is nearly nil. And uh, so, uh, so a lot of this is inertia uh, opposition to anything new, to any, to any kind of uh, policy recommendation. Yeah, uh, as in like there's 50 states already that have some type of licensing regime. There is not a single state that is just trying to perform the public uh, benefits uh, that are supposed to be provided by licensing through private certification. You got to be the person to stick your uh, stick your head out, and that requires beating a, uh, or requires convincing a lot of people that this is the right way to go without necessarily a lot of comparison, which is a nice thing about having 50 states and a lot of these things, because you can show examples from other states. And uh, and I think you've got some clever ways of trying to demonstrate that um, private certification is the way to go, but not quite the end, you know, Texas and, and, and Utah have gone this way and got, right. gotten rid of their licensing regimes. And here, and now we can compare and contrast. So how do you make the case then? persistence is one thing uh just Mm. don't just don't stop keep talking to people keep promoting the idea someday there's going to be look this is this is part of the problem every now and then you have a legislator in some state that says you know what it is really stupid that we license barbers and cosmetologists and so they propose a law to repeal barber and cosmetology licensing and all, excuse my French here, but all hell breaks loose. Every barber in the state, every cosmetologist in the state comes down on them. They get emails, they get mail, they get hostile people in their offices. And there's barbers in every single legislative district. Exactly. And they're scared to death that all of a sudden, these every legislator is frightened to death of proposing anything like that. And then they hear about it. And when it's happened in the past and they go to Alec and they go to, uh, in uh, Alec is the American legislative exchange council. They work on developing model legislation. Right. 
and then there's NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislatures. They go to these meetings, hear about these things. And look, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, some of the most cowardly people on earth are elected to office. I mean, the fact is they want to keep their seats something awful and don't want to do anything to disturb that. And they want love. They want a lot of love. And so anything that disturbs that sort of copacetic existence, the vast majority of them don't want to do it. And mm-hmm. so that's one reason. Yeah, this is the why, the general Overton window issue right. uh, where it's like, look, legislators want these things to be easy. They want it to be popular. And let's say that there is an idea that I do think is well provide popular public benefits. Private certification is a better system than we've got today to, to provide or to protect people from the from theoretical harms from people mis, uh, misusing their occupations. Um, but uh, the politicians only know the system that we have. The system that we have benefits a handful of people. And those people are in their district and they're going to hear from them if they try and touch this issue, whereas all the people that are going to benefit, the theoretical public benefits that are going to happen, they're not going to hear from them. Exactly. Um, uh, it comes uh, back to that. that, kind of- uh, that ver- One of my colleagues at 1889, he left and went to work for the chamber, of, uh, the state uh, chamber of commerce. He wrote an excellent. 1889 was a free market think tank in Oklahoma. Right. It, it was one that I was director of and it recently closed. And mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote an excellent essay based on a lesson. I think I'd taught him, uh, honestly, but it's an old lesson that economists learned a long time ago. And that's the concept of concentrated benefits and very diffuse costs. And that's the problem that's Mm -hmm. always being dealt with in government. You have all these taxpayers spread out all over the place who for any given government program or government proposal, no matter how rotten (laughs) and useless it might be, they only pay a pittance for that program. Mm -hmm. But there are a very small handful of people who get a huge amount of benefit from it. Those people are going to be at the legislature extolling the virtues of this program and telling how uh, the members how important it is. And all the taxpayers have absolutely no incentive. The net benefit of trying to go and and argue against that program is so small is so small for them because they would only avoid a tiny portion of taxes that they don't go and argue against it. And so. All the legislators hear from are the people who are who are advocates, and they think that's the world. And that you know, does it show really poor judgment on legislators' part? Absolutely. But at the same time, they're responding to the incentives of the system when they go along with these silly programs, and and so that's why it is that people like me exist and and feel very strongly and passionate about our our role in trying to protect taxpayers from this kind of kind of system realizing the truth of the matter that these programs often their costs don't come close to uh, their benefits mm-hmm. that is don't come close to outweighing the costs and yet they exist because of this problem yeah. 
you think you bring up a really interesting point I want to dig into, which is it's really easy to ignore policy people. Just don't read their stuff. Don't pay attention to them. How is it that you as a policy person can have any impact in the policy debate at all? I've become increasingly convinced that papers are for to establish credibility because hardly anybody reads them. But the fact that they've, you know, you, uh, there's a joke in the movement uh, among our colleagues that, you know, we're just one white paper away from true freedom. <laughs> is, of course, a knock on how few people actually read our, our, our work and their limited use. <laughs> That's true. But white papers are important for your credibility. If, if you if you've authored a whole bunch of studies uh, and every one of them is is well sourced, um, you have instant credibility. The fact that I have a Ph.D. after my name adds some credibility, whether whether it means that much or not. But uh, the uh, the the impact comes from personal contact with legislators, which we weren't an advocacy organization. So that, that makes it, that makes that difficult because they want people who are going to help them pass a bill, but uh, otherwise they really don't care that much about what you have to say. And then the other thing is, uh, is your voice in the public. And to the extent that you can get some attention in the press Maybe have your own blog that that you do the best that you can to promote and get read as much by people as possible and write in a way that's entertaining but also informative. Uh, and sometimes that means being kind of bombastic. Uh, I think that's really the key to breaking into people's consciousness. But let's let's be realistic. Even then you're talking about a minority of the population that cares enough to read those kinds of blogs. Uh, the vast majority of people are a whole lot more interested in just getting their work done on a daily basis, um, having some time with their family in the evening and then going out and having fun on the weekend. And, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I can't blame them. I'm not condemning their priorities. Uh, but it does leave them very vulnerable to what government is doing all the time to impact them. That's though. I, I think that's the, um, the key to being a policy person though, is that you're not necessarily going to have a megaphone all the time. Maybe, you know, with good communications work, you can get a good message broadcast around the state to try and convince hearts and minds. But what we bring to the table is some is interesting things and persuasive things. And if, if that is the core thing that we can provide, you know, some people are going to come to us and find some gold there. Uh, you know, you, you can easily ignore, ignore what we've got, but for those people who are actually interested, who do want to know what's going on, if we can be persuasive and interesting, we can magnify our impact now, but I think that's kind of interesting. And, and we'll close with, um, with this, which is, uh, the basic function that you and other policy people provide is to research and write about public policy. Uh, this sounds pretty standard, but I've never seen two people do it the same way, not even close to the same way. 
you know, some people are aggressive and emphasize key points and want to cover every piece of evidence, you know, and be the real, you know, uh, uh, fighting dog on, on these issues. You know, other people take an academic tone, you know, they want to dive into the literature on a subject and employ advanced uh, statistical applications. And I mean, there's just a lot of different tendencies. Uh, your particular style I describe as calm, measured, and thorough. Why do you think our styles are so different? Well, a lot of it has to do with just personality. Um, it has to do to some extent with whatever lessons you've learned in your career. Um, mm -hmm. my, my tendency, actually, when it comes to blogging and all, I try to be, I'm fairly strident. Um, but when it comes to the white papers, that's where you're establishing your credibility. You try to be as objective as possible. Um, but the other thing, I think ultimately many approaches are best because different circuit under different circumstances, the different personalities mm -hmm. and all that, um, some work better than others. And, mm -hmm. and that changes over time and under circumstances of who's whose approach is best. So I don't condemn anybody for a different approach. I guess my main issue would be circumspection, humility in what you propose. I think there are some people who run off half cocked, even on my side. And, uh, and so I think we just have to be careful about what it is we're advocating. Mm hmm. Byron, thank you for helping us understand what's in the Overton window. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.